would you please turn to Psalm 2? Psalm 2 opens with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And there are certain times in our lives when we see the raging of the world around us more clearly and more upfront, right in front of our face. And sometimes it can make it hard to see the coming sun who will reign. And this week, our community has experienced a tragedy. And there's much pain, and people ask why. And when Jalen was taken off life support, I asked why. There's so much injustice in the world, and it's painful, and there's times like this where we see sin in very real and tangible ways, and the impacts of the brokenness and of the fallenness of humanity. So if you're discouraged by the events this week, I would like to encourage you, brothers and sisters, know that Psalm 2 is for you. And it may not be for you in the way that you might think. It's not just a collection of encouraging verses. Rather, it reminds us that the sun will reign. And in light of his reign, we should recognize our limitations. And we should receive him as king. And we should take refuge in God. So it's my hope that you would take refuge in God today. It's also Palm Sunday, the time when we recall the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And there's a bit of tension there in that event. Jesus is entering in on a donkey. People are praising him. And victory is the, the way you see the outward expression of this event. Yet underneath it, there's a tension there because the rulers and leaders, they want to destroy Jesus. They want to bring him down. And so what we see is sometimes, even in God's plan, things don't work out the way we expect, right? Psalm 2 gives us this bigger context of events. God will have victory. Christ will reign and rebellion will fail. And we are invited to come and to serve the Son. So would you read Psalm 2 as I read it for us? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, help us to take refuge in you. Lord, even as the nations rage, even as there is great sin and disorder in the world around us, help us to see that you have established your king and that his rule will prevail. And so, Lord, thank you for the testimony of Psalm 2. Thank you that you provide it as a hope to give us confidence, even in the midst of trials. Help us to find refuge in you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Winston Churchill was a man with many flaws. You may have seen the the recent movie on his uh, experience during the uh, time with Dunkirk. And through political circumstance and his own personal background and history, he was thrust into this position of leadership and authority at a critical time in history. And yet, there were people who were close to him who wanted to see him fail. And this is really common among leaders and kings, isn't it, if you look through history. There were people in his own cabinet who they were keeping a a record of of his actions and wrongs in order to, to find evidence against him. There's always somebody waiting in the wings to come in and take that authority, the void that's left when the person in the lead falls. And yet, we recognize that people like Churchill have faults. But what events like that show us is that we are all captured on one level or another by jealousy and by coveting. We desire what we don't have. We desire what has been given to someone else. It affects us all. So have you ever been in a position where you wanted somebody else's authority? It's an emotional reaction. And if you've ever struggled with that, or if you've ever suffered under somebody else who wanted to usurp or take authority, then you could probably relate to this opening of Psalm 2. King David had his detractors too. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it kind of gives us the background context of this psalm. It says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So here we see God promising to David that he will establish his kingdom, and he will establish his throne forever, and that there will always be somebody sitting on that throne. It begins with David, and ultimately it finds its culmination in Christ. And so this Psalm 2 begins with David, and ultimately it's about Christ. It's about the history of redemption and how the promises of God find culmination on the cross, and ultimately in the end of time when Christ will reign. 
yet it also shows us a few other things. It shows us this jealousy that is intrinsic to who we are. And we seek position at the expense of others. And people are willing to, to subvert and take what is not theirs so that they can have more. And in Psalm 2, the kings and the nations, they want the son's authority. But Psalm 2 shows us that God and his son will have victory in the end. And so there, there's this uh, situation of sin that's revealed to us here, right? There's a context of sin that's prevalent in this passage. God calls everyone to follow Christ because he is the one that God has established as his chosen one to rule the world. And that mankind lives in rebellion against God. And Christ will have victory in the end, therefore God calls us to serve him. But these kings who say they will burst their bonds apart, they don't recognize their limitations. Right? We sin, we make mistakes, we are finite, we are limited. And we need to recognize that limitation. And Psalm 2 helps us to see that. Verses 1 through 3, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. This opening word, why, he asks why. Because it's senseless. Why do they do this? They plot in vain. It's really not reasonable. It doesn't make sense. But it's the basic orientation of mankind, right? We resist the authority around us, and we resist God, and we resist the sun, and it's characterized as the nation's raging. So our personal desires bring sin and strife into our lives. Selfish ambition, right? There is an ambition that can be submitted to God and to God's authority, but there's also ambition that's captured by sin, and that's selfish ambition. We think that we can do better. We scoff at others. Have you ever scoffed at others when you thought that they were doing a bad job? Maybe somebody who does that job all the time, right? You see this all the time. Last week, we had snow in the forecast. We weren't sure when it was gonna come exactly or how much because it was a difficult thing to, to predict. And I saw where people scoffed at the weatherman as if they could do better, right? We, we do this in little ways, and we do it in big ways, right? Mankind possesses an appalling lack of humility. It says the kings of the earth, this authority, this power, they had the power to enforce their will. They have the power to take what they want by force. And they take offense to the Lord and his anointed. Why? Why do they take offense? Why do the kings place themselves against God? Ultimately, they covet the blessings that the son has received. They want that for themselves. Yet the rulers plot in vain. They plot that's murmuring. Have you ever murmured against somebody else? Against somebody who is more successful than you? 
This is something that I'm sure if we were honest, we've, we've all done it at some point. It shows the fallenness of our own heart, right? We want what they have. We look at that person and say, he doesn't deserve that job. I could have done that. Right? And that's vanity. It doesn't help anything. When we murmur, it doesn't bring justice into the world. It just hardens our own heart. Right? We're not satisfied, and so we've we fill our hearts with jealousy and anger. And you two have done this. We've all done this. It doesn't bring righteousness into the world. It damages us. So for those who murmur against the sun, they need to realize that their plotting is in vain. Nothing will come of it in the end. Also, when, when others murmur against you, or seek personal gain at your expense, how do you respond? Do you fear man? Right? And when I say fear man, I don't just mean shaking in your boots fear. I mean, do you position yourself to take advantage of the situation in order to appease the other person? I mean, fear of man is common. And it's just, really, it's just fearing people more than fearing God. In Acts 4, Peter and John have just been suffering trials at the hands of the Jewish leaders. In the early parts of Acts, they're imprisoned, they're brought before the Jewish leaders a couple times. And in Acts 4, Peter quotes from Psalm 2. In light of the persecution that they were experiencing, and he's, after quoting from Psalm 2, he says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So here, Peter, in the midst of the trials that they were facing, he knew that those leaders plotted in vain. And he looked to Psalm 2 as an encouragement. And his admonition to the church was that they would have boldness. Boldness in the midst of that persecution. So may God grant you boldness to proclaim the gospel. May he grant you boldness knowing the threats of those around you against God will not stand. And may he grant you boldness knowing that Christ's kingdom will be forever. And then in verses four through six, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them with his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord laughs. The Lord is the one who sits in the heavens. He's above all of these events taking place, and he looks down upon the kings. And the kings are taking themselves rather seriously, don't you think? And, and how does God respond to them? He realizes that they are not a threat. 
He doesn't have to adjust his plans for them. He has set his king on Zion. And he reaffirms to them that he has chosen what he will do. So you can trust that God will do what he says he will do. One time, Aaron and I ran into some cult members, and we had a discussion with them. And one of the things they said was that God did not intend for Jesus to die. That that was kind of an accident, something that could have happened, could have been okay if it didn't happen, everything would have turned out the same either way. Because they didn't have a need for sacrifice in their theology. They were a works-based system of thought. But that's not what Scripture says. If you look at the Gospels, they're pointing over and over again how Jesus was looking towards Jerusalem. And a significant portion of each Gospel text is spent on that last week from the entry into Jerusalem through the cross. The Gospels themselves point to how Christ must die on the cross to accomplish God's plan. So even those who were plotting against Christ, they were fulfilling God's prophecy and will. So even though they plot, ultimately, the Lord laughs. Right. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. We see the cross and we find redemption that is accomplished for you. So therefore, be confident. God has said that he will set his king on Zion. We have confidence that God will do what he says he will do. We can trust him at his word. Also, look at the ambition of the kings and watch your own ambition. Is your ambition selfish for your own desires or is it submitted to God in God's kingdom? So if you're a Christian, submit your ambition to God and welcome the Son as King. Verses seven through nine. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. First thing we can observe here is that the Son will rule and that the Father loves the Son. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this loving relationship between the Father and the Son, it guarantees Christ's authority, right? It's, it's an affirmation of what will take place. We see in Colossians, right, he's the firstborn of all creation. That firstborn doesn't mean that he was created, but it's a, a title of position, right? The one who will inherit all things, right? So that fits really well with Psalm 2. The same idea, that Christ is the one that will receive a heritage, and that heritage is the nations. Hebrews 1 draws on Psalm 2 to talk about how Christ is superior to the angels, and it goes through and lists some more psalms Know that the relationship between the Father and the Son establishes Christ's place of preeminence. John's Gospel does an excellent job of fleshing out this relationship between the Father and the Son, and also the Holy Spirit, and 
He even draws the church into that relationship in several places. In John chapter 14, it says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. You see a spirit of adoption there. And we see adoption at other places in Scripture. So this relationship between the Father and the Son, it establishes Jesus' authority but it's also the foundation for our relationship with God. Christ reconciles us to God. And it's only through the Son that we have access to the Father. It's because the Father loves the Son that he gives the Son a heritage. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So we see how God's love ensures this heritage. The Son doesn't have any needs He just simply has to ask of the Father. And compare that to these kings and nations. They take what they want by force. They they burst apart the bonds. Yet the son asks and the father gives. The kings have a very different attitude. And what's your relationship with God like? Is it more like the kings or more like the son? How do you get what you want? Do you take it by force, or do you ask God in prayer? Do you come to the Father knowing that he will provide for your needs? You see, the Son's kingdom was in line with the Father's will. Is your own life in line with your will, or is it in line with the Father's will? There really is a contrast here. The the rod of iron versus a pot dashed to pieces. A rod was a shepherd's implement. And the fact that it's a rod of iron shows that it's strong and lasting. But he's still a shepherd. He will shepherd the nations. So his rule will be strong because it's guaranteed by God, the Father. But there's this other side of the breaking of the pot. That's the the dashing of, of the rebellious nation. So the contrast is real. And a choice is placed before us. Which side will you take It's the same choice that was presented in Psalm 1. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Will you be shepherded or will you be broken? And know that God's people's heritage is from the Son. At the beginning of the service, Adam read from 1 Peter. And that passage talks about our adoption or the inheritance that we have. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Be encouraged knowing that God has given the Son a heritage. And we have opportunity to partake of that inheritance. So knowing that we have an inheritance and knowing his protection, we can take refuge in God. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There's some strong contrasting thoughts there, aren't there? Right? Be wise and be warned. Serve with fear. Rejoice with trembling. And how do you reconcile these two things? How do you reconcile the admonition to follow combined with the severity of not following? One commentator put it this way. He said, the only safe place from God is in God. So those who take refuge in him will find blessing. And those who do not will perish. There's a lot of dangers in this world. But the greatest danger you will ever face is the wrath of God. And the choice is before you. Will you take side with the kings or with the son? I urge you to take refuge in God today. In this section, it talks about serving the Lord and how it is submission to the Son. It says, serve, serve the Lord in reverence. Are you in charge or are you a servant of God? Right? Basic question. It also says, kiss the Son. This is a, an image of submission. God is powerful, but his people are safe in him. So outside of God's care, there is wrath, but safety and protection are found in Christ. And so how are we to respond to this? We're called to respond in repentance. There's an admonition here at the end of the passage. It says, take refuge in God. There's all these warnings, and they are stern warnings, but it closes in hope, an offer. It says, take refuge in God. And there's a corollary there that there's a mission of reconciliation then, right? We long to see people, men and women, take refuge in God. Psalm 2 ends with this offer of hope, and it's our heart's desire that you would place your faith in Christ. Another theme in this last section is the theme of rejoicing. We rejoice in our service. Psalm 100 captures this gladness of serving the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Make, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Right? You see that relationship driving the rejoicing there. And so it ends with blessing to those who take refuge, right? Psalm 1 has a lot of similarities to Psalm 2. There's this contrast, mentioned it earlier, between the righteous and the unrighteous. Psalm 1 really focuses in on the heart, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Right? This is a function of our, our heart, intent, and desire. Psalm 2 takes a different tact. It zooms way out. It looks at the fate of kings and nations. Yet we see 
some of the same things there. We see, will you serve the son or will you be broken? Right? Will you place yourself with the righteous or with the unrighteous? So Psalm 2 may be talking about the fate of people and nations, but those kings and peoples and nations, they're still people. And they have hearts just like your heart. Don't think that Psalm 2 is not talking about you as well. Right. It's set in the context of history and of future redemption. It gives us a big picture idea of what is coming. It gives us hope for the future. It shows us that history is not meaningless. It's working towards a fixed conclusion. And so we can take refuge in the Son and joy, knowing that he is good and his victory is worthy to be celebrated. And we can take refuge in the Son in hope because he's appointed by God and his kingdom will stand. And we can take refuge in the Son in confidence knowing that he blesses those who take refuge in him. There's been a lot of talk in our day about how we live in a post-Christian nation, a post-Christian era, where people have turned their hearts away from God to other things, particularly to secularism. But know this, even in Israel's day, Psalm 2 did not come to full fruition. David suffered under those who came against him. Christ suffered and he's the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The church, in their trials, looked to Psalm 2 for boldness and confidence and hope. And in Revelation 2, Christ is speaking and he applies it, he applies Psalm 2 directly to the church. So God's people are conquerors not by their own accord but because they have victory through Christ. There's also this promise that the present order, it's not gonna stand. It's not gonna be here forever. Right? So it's given in hope and you see God will have the final word. Revelation 2, starting in verse 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. See, both David and Christ, they both suffered at the hands of others. And we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Life is fragile, and the world is broken. The nations rage, which is why we must take refuge in God. And that's why that passage in Revelation is applied to the church. So if you're a believer this morning, where is your hope in the future? Don't let it be in the kings of this earth because their victory is temporary, it's transient. It will not last. And for us, we can say we don't have a king. Well, that's presidents, that's politicians, that's famous figures. Right? 
The authority of the kings will not bring us ultimate victory. Their victories are in vain. So even as you suffer loss in your personal life, even as you're discouraged, even as you feel like a stranger in a strange land, it may even be the land that you were born in. Look to Christ's words here. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So as we wait, we need to recognize our limitations. We need to welcome the Son as King, and we need to take refuge in God. Now this is an exhortation from Christ to his church to hold to the gospel in the face of trials, and he backs it up with the promises given in Psalm 2 that Christ will have rule and authority in the end. So no matter how the kings of the earth assert themselves, Christ is the true king. No matter how many people decide that they will place their fate with the raging peoples, with the nations, rather than with Christ, you, brothers and sisters, hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to God's promises until he comes. And so it's my prayer for you this morning that you would take refuge in God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us a firm, fixed hope. We do not have to fear. Our boldness and confidence to the world, it's irrational, but it's found in you. So Lord, may we trust in you today. May we take refuge in you. When life gets difficult, when trials overtake us, we can turn to nowhere else but to you. And so, Lord, we trust you. We pray that you would be our hope in life and death. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.